Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet authors Tamara Wilson and Amy Rogers, contributors to the collection of stories titled Idle Talk. Women Writers on the Teenage Infatuations that Changed Their Lives. The book was a finalist for the Eric Hoffer Book Award. Its cover features the boy band Herman's Hermits, and the inside pages are filled with essays from pop culture icons. We find stories about singers like Elvis Presley, The Beatles, Sam Cooke, Paul Revere and the Raiders, Jim Morrison, Woody Guthrie, Paul Simon, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Cher, Janis Joplin, Bobby Orr, Diana Ross, and Michael Jackson. But they're TV shows and actors, too, such as The Man from U.N.C.L.E., The Mod Squad, Harrison Ford, Johnny Depp, Jennifer Beale, Leonardo DiCaprio, Bogart and Bacall, Dick Van Dyke, and more. We start the show with Tamara, sometimes called Tammy in this episode, and Amy, reading from the introduction of the book, which is titled The Truth Behind the Size. When the idea for this book came about, we didn't have to twist many arms. Contributors were eager to get on board, for what woman doesn't like to wax nostalgic about her teen idol? Each of our authors admitted to adolescent crushes. Many had cut photos out of fan magazines and pinned them to their bedroom walls, or more discreetly, taped them to the back of a closet door. Learning how teen idols affected the lives of these accomplished women was a revelation. Teen idols are celebrities, first loves, if you will, who are shared by millions of admirers. They're part of girl culture. Like a first date or a first kiss, their smiles are etched in our brains. Few of us want to talk about the baser side of growing up. Acne, training bras, braces... Teen idols hover in the middle of all that as semi-embarrassing footnotes. As adults, we don't want to admit that they were once smitten by a famously handsome face, with or without famously admirable talent. Rolling Stone once described the teen idol as a special kind of rock star. Their popularity may fall as fast as it rises, but it tends to rise higher and inspire more ecstatic adoration than any other kind of artist. Traditional teen idols are musicians or actors with an inherent boyish charm. You know the type. Paul McCartney, Peter Noon, Davy Jones, Bobby Sherman. Baby faces who age slowly. Others are machos with a swaggering bad boy image. Elvis, Sam Cooke, John Lennon, Johnny Depp. But whoever they are, they capture our young hearts like no other. Decades later, we stop in our tracks when we hear their voice or see their image. As with a first kiss or a first dance, we can't forget the intense feelings we had for them. Years later, we gasp at the sight of our idol on a magazine cover or a movie marquee or on a fundraiser for public television. Teen idols capture the imagination like a perpetual game of mystery date. We fangirls skip over disheveled schoolboys in favor of airbrushed dreamboats on movie posters or on the covers of fan magazines and record albums. 
These Prince Charmings appear on that dreamy bridge of time between toys and dates, when the fan is no longer a child and not quite an adult. But teen idols are more than mere stars. They occupy our hearts. Once they step in, they never completely step out. Though we marry, pay mortgages, and do all the things adults do, our teen crushes remain part of our personal history that never fully dissolves. Psychologists say that preoccupation with celebrities helps a young girl transition to the teenage years and adulthood. Crushing on a teen idol means that she is individualizing herself apart from her parents. Too young to date, she can divert her eyes to her teen idol, a safe alternative. She can pin a celebrity's photograph on her wall, buy his or her records, and daydream a dress rehearsal for adult relationships. But whether we're 13 or 33 or 63, we're all teens at heart. We thrill at the thought of meeting our idol or of being in proximity to the special person, finally breathing the same oxygen in the same room or stadium, as the case may be. We want to feel the power of one who had the incredible good fortune to be struck by golden lightning. By meeting that person, maybe some of the magic will rub off. If we are lucky enough to meet our crush later in life, We are forced to confront the bare-bones truth that youth is over, and our idol is struggling with that same reality. He or she has gained weight, acquired glasses, gray hair, and a rounded posture. Time has taken its toll, though we want so desperately for that not to be the case. We want a solid memory to come to life. The same handsome face on the album cover, the retouched photo in the fan magazine, the dashing image on the screen. We want our idols to be constant. We pray, dear God, let them look like they used to. Let that early version still exist. But of course, the actual person, the real human being, must grow old with us or sadly die before his or her time. Tamara Wilson is the author of Dining with Robert Redford and Other Stories, short fiction about small town life, and is co-editor of the anthology Idol Talk, Women Writers on the Teenage Infatuations that Changed Their Lives. She's written a local Slice of Life newspaper column since 2006. Her creative work often explores themes of family conflict, belonging, and obsession with celebrity. Her work has appeared in Story South, North Carolina Literary Review, The New Guard, Epiphany, and elsewhere. Tammy won the Jesse Stewart Prize for Young Adult Fiction, was a finalist for the Mashagon Fiction Prize and Killer Nashville Claymore Award in 2017, and has received two regional artist project grants by the North Carolina Arts Council. She's an alumni of the University of Missouri School of Journalism and the Stone Coast Creative Writing Program at the University of Southern Maine. She's a work on a novel about her great-grandmother, an orphan train rider in 1860, a project that encompasses two of her passions, American history and genealogy. Amy Rogers is the author of Hungry for Home, Stories of Food from Across the Carolinas, and Red Pepper Fudge and Blue Ribbon Biscuits. She co-authored Charlotte and Historic Neighborhoods in the Black America series, Charlotte, both from Arcadia Publishing. Her writing has been featured in publications such as 27 Views of Charlotte, The Queen City in Prose and Poetry, and Cornbread Nation One, The Best of Southern Food Writing, and The North Carolina Century, both from University of North Carolina Press. Amy studied writing at Queens College in Charlotte, now Queens University, and is a graduate of the Creative Capital Professional Artist Development Program in New York. She's a longtime contributor on food, culture, and related topics for WFAE here in Charlotte, and she's the recipient of the Irene Blair Honeycutt Legacy Award, which honors a community member who's contributed outstanding service in support of local and regional writers. In her spare time, Amy says you can find her hosting pie contests or working on collaborative arts projects with fellow creatives. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte McMurg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcast. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. 
For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Tamara, welcome to the show. Thank you. Amy, Good welcome. To be here. Glad to be here. Yeah, so you got this blurb on the back of your book, Idle Talk, and it says, Idle Talk offers fun, distinctively unique stories of the rite of passage experience of celebrity puppy love and celebrates how these crushes change these former teeny boppers' lives from a more mature perspective. It says, Ann Moses, former editor of Tiger Beat and author of Meow, My Groovy Life with Tiger Beat's Teen Idol. What is Tiger Beat, by the way? <laughs> it, was a, it was a teen magazine. Okay. And right. the, it was a heyday was in the 60s, early yeah, 70s. Yeah. yeah. All right. Now, these phrases, rite of passage experience, celebrity puppy love, um, is that how it was? I mean, were y'all in love with these? Well, I was, I was going to marry my idol. I don't know about you, Amy. <laughs> Completely. Yeah. Completely in love. And and were you, uh, am, I, am I sitting here in the studio at Advent co-working with former teeny boppers? Is that, are y'all, would you classify yourselves? Well, as, we were more classy than teeny more, boppers. More classy, yeah. I'm not uh, sure I did a lot of bopping. Okay. Yeah. Right. But I, I was, I had some teen idol fans. And yeah. we had some, we had some dreams back then, some for dreams. sure. Yeah, and we're going to get in, I'm going to go back in a little bit to some of the points that were made in your opening introduction that I found uh, interesting. But before before we do that, I want to talk about how this book came together. Um, Tammy, you were one of the editors of the book, right? Right. Yeah, and uh, so in addition to contributing an article to the book, you sort of had to herd all of these now mature authors to put on paper these reflections that they had when they were very young, right? I think heard is a good verb heard, to use. Heard, okay. Yeah. So how did this idea um, for Idle Talk uh, get birthed? All right. I'm back in 2013, and I went to, actually was my second concert with Peter Noon and Herman of Herman's Hermits, and it was in Lenore, North Carolina. And we're going to be talking about this this fellow a lot before the show. We are. <laughs> well, he's on the cover of the book. He wrote yeah. the foreword. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and he happens to be your He happened to be the guy I was going to marry. Yeah, yeah you were going to marry him, right? Until someone when else you were beat me to it. Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. No, I was about 13. 13, okay. But right. you were ready. You, if he'd asked, you'd have said yes. Uh, well, right? yeah. Well, okay. I guess, yeah. yeah. Um, he didn't ask. Anyway, okay. um, I, so I go to the concert, and I was amazed at how the music could take people back in time. I looked around. I saw most of them were older people. Of course, mm. I was a young person right, <laughs> in yeah. my mind anyway. Right. <laughs> uh, what, when I left, I noticed Peter was there signing autographs. I went through the line, and I was the last person in line. I knew he had to catch a flight quickly that evening to get to Florida that next day. And he took as much time as it took to sign every autograph and to sign all of the stuff I had brought and was very pleasant about it. I thought I was so smart to have such a good teen idol. I really was. And and so you're you're thinking, how do I take this experience? Well, and I thought, you know, I'm a writer and I've had this experience now. I can write about it. So I did. And I wrote a piece for our local paper, kind of a review of of the performance. And then my friend and cohort, Elizabeth Searle, who is a novelist, playwright, screenwriter, uh, from Massachusetts, whom I had met in graduate school, has a blog called Celebrities in Disgrace. And she asked me to write a blog for her. And I said, nothing disgraceful happened. But uh, she said, well, write it anyway. So I did. And then I realized, well, there, she's been collecting these stories from people and their celebrity crushes, you might say, for a while. I thought, we could make a book out of this. So I proposed it to her. And it took about two or three years before it ever really got going, but so, it did. So, Amy, how did you get pulled into the vortex here of, of Idle Talk? Happily. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you know, first off, I, I want to say what a tremendous accomplishment this is for Tammy, who I've known for a long time, and Elizabeth, who I know through Tammy's work here. Coming up with a concept and making it into a book is like running a marathon from starting on your sofa with just the thought in your head. The amount of work you have to do to conceptualize it, reach your possible contributors, wrangle all the work, get the photos, get the credits, the the permissions, and then get it out there and market it and all that. It's just, it's, it's astronomical. I know this because that's how Tammy and I met when I was putting together um, a, a cookbook project called Hungry for Home. You know, this sounds a bit like running a podcast, you know, what you just described. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Getting but, the authors together, get them permission, getting... Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, and there's yeah. a tremendous amount of minutiae beyond yeah. the creative 
part right, that's fun. Right, and I right. so my I really salute Tammy and Elizabeth for doing that because you never see it. It's all behind the scenes. But y'all met originally over food, you said. Correct. Because when I was when I had the the idea, hey, let's do a cookbook, like Tammy said, hey, let's do a book about teen idols. And I was reaching out to people to participate in the cookbook project. Tammy and I had not met. I had put out a call for submissions through back what was then a newspaper. Anybody remember those in 2003? <laughs> and, and across my desk came Tammy's recipes. Um, one is for potato salad, mm-hmm. and another is for a really wonderful kind of northern brought south oyster stuffing slash dressing right that with stories of how they became meaningful to tammy and her family which is a long way of saying we met on a project i was doing so when she was launching a project i was delighted to be asked to participate that's great so let let, let me let's talk about the title of the book just a second um idle talk now miriam webster defines idle first of all it's a noun it says an object of extreme devotion another definition is a symbol of an object of worship a false god so, of course, idle, you could, if you say the word and you don't spell it correctly, you could be idly talking about you you know, could. some of these. Well, so. and you might look at it that way, but we don't see it that way. <laughs> you don't yeah. see it that way. So um, let's talk about teen idols for a moment. Uh, how extreme was this uh, devotion that the two of you had to your idols? And we're going to talk more about who they are and what they did, but I'm just sort of focused on now this idea of devotion at a young age. Well, at the time we were both basically junior high age we would have only had available to us a, a teen magazine maybe a television show here and there and of course music on the radio am radio which am radio yeah. transistor AM radio. radio yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was pretty innocent pretty pretty basic some listeners won't know what that is you know so oh, go yeah. ahead yeah <laughs> but but it was um, you know the forerunner of some things we have now we couldn't have imagined what it would be like if you had social media and you had youtube you could pull up videos 24 hours a day and that would have been and thought you know but but given what you had at the time the magazines the tv shows were you always tuning in were you cutting out pictures of magazines and putting them on your walls and i still have my framed well they're not framed they're with construction paper that were on my wall when i was 13 and i actually had mark Lindsay there too sorry about that amy but yeah mark Lindsay is is amy's Right. He was my fave. Yeah. yeah. And also 45 records. Yeah. When a 45 record was released, it was a huge deal because you had to go and buy that 45 and play it on your little dinky record player that had to have a little adapter in it because yeah. most record players were made for 33s, right. which is a whole nother topic. But that was the extent to which you encountered your crush, hoping that you would stumble upon them being played on the radio. If you did write a letter to your crush back then, the letter probably would take weeks, if not months, to ever reach the person, if in fact it ever did, uh, because they would be moving around, you know, concert schedules and whatever. They would never catch up with their mail. All right. So um, this idea of teen idols, you've got I mean, 20 or 30 essays in this book from very accomplished writers. Yeah, it's actually like 40-some. 40 40-some. 40 yeah. Okay. Were you surprised uh, at the range of idols that appeared <laughs> i was book. very surprised at yeah. some of these i i th- i was really just thinking about the 60s you know td bopper type of idol and all of a sudden we get stars from even from the 30s we get someone like raymond burr we get mm. dick van dyke i had not thought of him as a teen idol but he was for jill mccorkle i mean that was, yeah. that when, was he, when he cool. stumbled over that uh, ottoman right. getting into the den. right yeah. uh <laughs> so it was interesting to me how people had different kinds of idols. I just thought, well, everybody picks one out of the tiger bait, and they didn't. So, And um, were there any common themes of devotion that kind of streamed through the, the, these 40 essays uh, in terms of how people worshipped uh, their teen idols? Well, generally you have someone who crushes on the person either through a picture or a, or a song or, or a movie, and then they will collect a photograph uh, maybe cut it out of a magazine and they'll mount it on you know in a frame or on their wall and that was or maybe have a poster and that then becomes like the main attraction in their room and uh it kind of goes from there which is kind of turning into a shrine now it too. is a shrine yes <laughs> and so amy as you sit here and think of mark Lindsay, he was paul revere and the raiders right correct what's the first thing that comes to your mind 
He had the ponytail. Okay, he did. okay, had the ponytail, mm-hmm. and you yeah. said you said that with a sigh. Yeah. Well, you know, he, you know, like <laughs> even the Beatles, who were like the ultimate of you know cool girl uh, adoration, Beatles didn't have ponytails. No, no. Mark Lindsay did. So Tammy, what springs to your mind about? Peter Noon. Well, he had a couple of things going for him. He had this gorgeous blonde hair, which he still has, actually. It's hard to believe. Um, and all of it. Uh, he had uh, blue eyes, which were pretty blue, but still are. And he had this, I guess you'd call it an eye tooth that he eventually lost by tussling with his band members. But but that was kind of a trademark. And I thought, well, you know, this guy, obviously, he never wore braces. In the opening read, turning back to this minute, this introduction, um, couple of phrases that caught my attention the word first appeared um it was a first for young girls and so why is that why are these so memorable to you i mean what what is it about and then that word occupy says occupy your hearts and do they still occupy your hearts to a point i think um i still kind of pause when i hear Peter Noon sing a song on the radio. Takes I heard, you back in time. Yeah, really? yeah. I, I heard him this this afternoon driving to Charlotte on on sixties radio. And, so wow, you heard yeah. him. Well, I had yeah. to go search him on YouTube. I was listening to him today before the podcast too. And Parvier and the Raiders, which by the way, uh, was Indian Reservation or that was one of the songs. Yeah, one of the songs. Yeah, but yeah. the but the thing about the the onslaught of of emotions that erupt in a young woman. You know, you've you're making the transition from childhood to young womanhood, and then all of a sudden here are these perfection-personified guys out there, (laughs) and you're looking at the guys in your school who, let's face it, are... Yeah. Some of them pretty subhuman. Mm-hmm. Forget they're, they're not cool. Like no, they're, no, they're, they're not even human. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and and then you're seeing mm-hmm. these unattainable, perfection personified people that just sparks a devotion, and of course sets you up for inevitable disappointment. Right, and yeah. it's, a, it's a trial run. It's like a well, let's try this. This I could you know consider this fantasy date with this person maybe and i'm not an adult yet i'm not still a child but i'm in that middle ground there so. you mentioned here psychologists say that this preoccupation helps a young girl transition to the teenage years and adulthood and i'm like really is that i mean is that a thing is it? for me i think that was the yeah. case okay i mean you yeah. don't know you're doing it right, right. yeah you know it's a Right, like a passage transition yeah. to adulthood here, so, but it, it's it's kind of like a like a game you play with yourself in right. a way. It's yeah. a fantasy that that you, yeah. the more you think about it, the more real it becomes. Okay, and then at the end, sort of a poignant moment here. Time has taken its toll. You know, you want a solid memory to come to life. You know, is this is this a special form of nostalgia? I mean, there are a lot of things you can be nostalgic about in your childhood and growing up, but this. Uh, teen idol looking back is that a happy time is it a time you, that draws you back depends on the idol depends on the person i have one of the very few lucky ones that actually got to meet their idol later yeah. in life and he's still alive he's yeah. still alive he's still out there performing that's not the case and a lot of a lot of idols have passed on or they no longer perform for whatever reason and i felt it was like a gift to be able to do that mm. now, i don't know you never met mark did you? no no and my story is about you know kind of a snowball of loss right. that tarnishes the innocence of that first girl crush mm-hmm. on a on a teen idol. And we're going to do your stories here in a little bit. We're going to do pieces of them and let you talk about those. Before we do, let's, we just need to set up who these teen idols are for the two of you. You've got, uh, we talked about uh, Peter Noon and Herman's Hermits. Um, that was an English rock band, right, mm-hmm. from Manchester in 1964. According to Wikipedia, they are originally called Herman and the Hermits. Right. Anyway. They uh, were part of sort of the British invasion, but they were singing a little bit different kind of songs than the Beatles and some of the others that came over. Right. right. They would sing songs that the others would never sing. And that, they were all very different bands. Mm-hmm. Um, they're sometimes considered one of the three top bands of the British invasion. That's how they introduced the shows these days. Mm-hmm. You could argue that. Um, so but, give us some names of some of the songs. Okay. I'm Henry VIII, I am. Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. There's a Kind of Hush, Dandy. Uh, this door swings both ways. Are these on your okay. Spotify playlist? Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there were, 
they had 20 top 20s and 10 top 10s. And they were super yeah. catchy. Yeah. yeah. They were super, yeah, they were super catchy. And, right. Yeah. And right. they're on the cover. And we had, we talked before the podcast. Uh, you said the cover was a bit controversial. You, you liked the picture on the cover, but you said Peter Noon was I, I liked the picture, and, and I had hoped they would use more than one band on okay. there. And I think yeah. that was Peter's problem with it. He you know, wondered if we could get Elvis or Davy Jones or someone else on there. And it was kind of done and that was kind of it. Well, they're but, all, they're all <laughs> they are awfully young looking. They are. The and I'd actually never seen that picture until I saw it on the cover. Yeah. I'd never uh, seen it anywhere. So. Okay. So, and, and they appeared on the Ed Sullivan show, the Dean Martin show, the Jack Gleason show. They, mm-hmm. they were really popular. Right. And, uh, they and, actually outsold the Beatles in 1965, which is quite an accomplishment at that time. And Mark Lindsay and, uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders. Uh, he he was the lead. Of, of, yeah, he was the front man. Okay, singer. He was the front man, singer. singer. Yeah, didn't play an instrument. Yeah, well, he played a saxophone. So, what were some of your favorite songs? Well, let's see. You know, they're they're all kind of like thinly veiled come ons. You know, mm. one is "Him or Me," "What's It Gonna Be," and another mm-hmm. one is um, "Hungry." Hungry for that good yeah. life, yeah. baby. Uh-huh. But the one that's outsold everything, according to the, you know Google, is "Indian Reservation." You well, know? that was much later. That, I know. that was much I later. Nineteen seventy-one. Yeah, seventy-one. No, we're talking sixties. Okay. We're talking when they're wearing the Revolutionary War <laughs> okay. costumes. Mm-hmm. Right. They're they're just out there, you know, kind of gassing it up and being. Well, they had tights with the. They did, yes, they so did. So that you think that was all public relations PR? Were they putting these kids in a costume and they're going to sell them well, but a it, certain it was, image? Yeah, it was a play on Paul Revere. <laughs> kind of like the monkeys, right? It, it, the, yeah, y- yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Okay. Paul Revere's actual name was Paul Revere Dick, and they dropped the Dick, right? And his name became Paul Revere, and. Anyway, that that was where the Raiders. I they think. capitalized right. on that, right? Yeah. All right, so uh, we're going to start right before the break with the uh, the first of your two readings here, um, Tammy, okay. and it's, uh, it comes from Back to Hermania, and I think we know what Hermania is now because we've got Herman Hermits <laughs> involved here. So um, this is an essay that you wrote. This in the collection, um, and you're going to start with the beginning of the essay, right? And then, right. Uh, so you can read that without too much setup, and then we'll talk some more. After that, it's 1967, and I'm trapped in junior high, a hundred miles from Keel Auditorium in St. Louis, where all the cool bands perform. KXOK, the cool radio station, has announced that the Hermits are coming on August 25th. The warm-up band is somebody called the Who. Hermits Hermits is the only group I've ever liked. I mean, really liked. And if I'm going to marry Peter, I should meet him first. I have it all figured out. I will win a backstage pass, slip through the dressing room door, and there he'll be, the star in a classic Chesterfield jacket, his thick blonde hair brushing the collar. I stand frozen in my pink calico shirt dress and bangle bracelets. I steady myself against the Formica countertop. Bare light bulbs surround the mirrors like a white-hot picture frame. I feel sweaty. Herman, or Peter, rather, cracks jokes, and I pretend to understand his accent. Herman smiles his famous eye-tooth grin and thrusts his right hand toward me. Hello, I'm Peter Noon, and you are? Tabby McElroy, I mumble. We shake hands. No, he gives me a hug, and oh, God, I'm inches from Peter's heart. I've worn flats because I'm the tallest girl in my class, and he's five foot nine, and I'm five foot eight and a half. Where are you from, he says. This is my cue to explain how far I live from someplace important. Shelbyville, Illinois, a hundred miles away. That's rather far. You're farther, I say, and I realize this sounds silly. In England, it's tomorrow already. The hermits chuckle. None of them look like they belong in a pop band. They're wearing suits and ties like they're going to church. Peter smiles. Where are you in school? It's his backdoor way of asking how old I am. I bite my lip. I'm going into eighth grade. My throat is dry. I cough. He shifts back a step. I'm way too young to date, much less marry. He will have to check into a rock star monastery and wait until I'm old enough, say, 18. Maybe Peter will take me in as Elvis did with Priscilla when she turned 17. I will attend recording sessions. No, this is a dumb idea. Even if I were 18 this instant, my parents would forget bid me to run off with a pop singer. 
People in show business are shiftless, no better than gypsies. Mom will squint through her cat-eye glasses. Run off with a hermit? That's what you think, Missy. No, Peter will have to bide his time in the monastery. There must be one in London. I'll go to college there. Of course. By then it will be 1972. Peter will be desperate to find me after enduring throngs of girls clawing at his door for five years. One day the monks will let him out on good behavior. He'll be strolling along the Thames like an overdressed Prince Charming and spot me near Tower Bridge, the one pictured in Yardley of London commercials. He'll call, Tammy from Shelbyville, I knew I'd find you again. Violins will play the glassy intro to There's a Kind of Hush and We Will Live Happily Ever After in a stone cottage in Shropshire because it has such a cool name. <laughs> what do you think, Amy? <laughs> Every time I hear it, I hear something different. It's yeah. got so it's, many layers, and yeah. it's so wonderful yeah. and pure. <laughs> it's yeah. so heartfelt. It's just yeah. insanity all in one It just captures thing. it so yeah. perfectly. Yeah, now this is in, in your little mind at the time. Right? Oh, yeah, it's it, a daydream, sure. This, this is the daydream part of the essay, right? You're not actually saying that to him. But we're going to get to the actual <laughs> real meeting in the second right. read that you have on the show here. But uh, So here's what we're going to do, listeners. We're going to take a short break, and then when we come back, uh, we're going to have uh, Amy read the first part of her essay. We're going to do the writing life segment a little bit, then we'll come back and have them both finish up so that you can find out how this, uh, how these uh, young teenage infatuations ended up. So stay with us, please. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Darlene Harris, a local criminal defense uh, and business law attorney in the Charlotte area. She does everything from high-level murder trials to DUIs and drug cases and even some traffic tickets. She also works as a business attorney helping people, including authors, protect their ideas and work through contracts, trademarks, and copyrights. But she's here, too, because she likes to read. Is that true, Darlene? That is very true. And you've been a reader for a long time? Quite a long time. Yeah, and so what are you reading now? So I'm currently reading um, Woman in the Window by A.J. Finn. Um, it's, it's a suspenseful book. It's, it's great so far. You, you like suspense. You like those legal thrillers. Yeah. I love them. Yeah. I love them. Yeah, I think in this book, uh, I'm looking at it online, this woman sees something she thinks might be a murder next door, but then we're not sure, right? We're not sure. Okay. Time will tell. <laughs> and that's kind of the way the law is. So uh, how are you sure that you wanted to be a lawyer? So my mom always tells us this story that when I was about six years old, the O.J. Simpson trial was happening, and I was absolutely obsessed with all the parts um, that she would let me watch. I would watch the trial. Um, and then as I got older, I started to see some friends and some people that I, you know, that I cared about get in trouble um, with the law. And I realized how, how complicated and scary the legal process can be if, if you're not aware of it. Um, and so I wanted to be an advocate to help people in that time. Yeah, but you also deal with the contract side of things, right? I do. So I'm an advocate and a protector all around. So on the business side and the contract side, um, I protect authors um, from the bigger companies, making sure that the contracts are fair, uh, reviewing those, negotiating them, trademarks and copyrights as well. Well, you never know about the listeners of Charlotte Reese Podcast. They might need your help in all kinds of areas. Uh, <laughs> let's just hope on the criminal side it's more in the traffic ticket area, uh, but and, and, and we'll leave it at that. So where, where can people find you? So they can find me um, at uh, oaklg.com. That's O-A-K-L-G.com. All right. Thanks, Darlene. Thanks, Landis. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice, because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. Hey, listeners, we're back with two authors who appeared in the book Idol Talk. We just heard from Tammy Wilson about her teen idol, and we're going to hear now from Amy Rogers, the first section of her essay. So, Amy, anytime you're ready. Thanks. Uh, my, my piece is called Meeting Mark Lindsay, A Story of Friends and Fandom. And I'm going to read a compressed introduction of how the piece starts out. We tore out the portrait pages from Tiger Beat magazine and pieced them together, seven across and seven down, into a quilt of pop star faces we taped to my bedroom wall. Mark Lindsay, the ponytailed lead singer from Paul Revere and the Raiders, always occupied the prime position eye level in the center of the right-hand row, closest to my pillow. His thick brown bangs covered his forehead. His chocolate eyes made me melt inside, and his juicy lower lip glistened. 
The wall was a lot of upkeep for two junior high girls in 1968. My best friend Robin and I would pedal our bikes to the newsstand in our town on Long Island for the magazines each month. A fresh portrait of Mark would mean we had to rearrange everything. I'd slide over Davy Jones of the Monkees and bump down TV star Bobby Sherman. We swooned when Mark growled his way through a song called Hungry, promising he'd break the rules if that was what it would take to give his woman a sweet life. They never mentioned drugs in the song Kicks, but we understood the secret language when Mark warned his girl she'd better get straight before it was too late. Every night she would greet me cheerily on the phone. Hi, it's Robin. She was worldly, curvy, stylish, and sexy. She knew all the words to the Broadway show tunes. She was gregarious and fearless. I was her opposite in almost every way. Scrawny, shy, with stick-straight hair. Her mom stayed home while Robin's dad worked. My dad was a thousand miles away in Florida while my mom worked in New York City at the office of a fashion designer on 7th Avenue. Robin taught me how to wear lipstick and part my hair so I'd look more like the cool girls. We made hippie jewelry and plundered thrift shops for clothes. Robin and I stumbled along learning to play a couple of cheap guitars our mothers bought us. I could manage simple songs like This Land is Your Land. Robin stunned everyone when she learned and belted out The Impossible Dream, the complicated showstopper from Man of La Mancha. As new bands arrived on the scene in the 1970s, Paul Revere and the Raiders got less and less airplay, as underground bands and hard rockers like Led Zeppelin exploded into popularity. Meanwhile, I discovered James Taylor and Joni Mitchell, folk singers who pushed past the three-chord song structure into sophisticated compositions. Deceptively happy lyrics about big yellow taxis hinted at a deeper yearning a 15-year-old couldn't articulate. So I climbed into the music and abandoned my childish worship of a pop singer. Then in 1971, I had to dismantle the photo wall. My family was moving from New York to Miami, and just like that, my best friend and I were separated, never to live in the same town or the same state ever again. All right, well, that's great, Amy. It gives us a real sense of uh, you know the activities that were occupying two, two young girls who were best friends at the time. And um, your friend here, who you mentioned uh, in the story, is one that uh, you, you talk about further in your essay because she comes back to you. She does. Right. T- talk about that a second. You know, I think what the, the universal experience that we all have had with this, and, and Tammy, you know, jump in here, it, you have this idealized vision of what your life could be like. And then, of course, reality sets in and you become an adult and you have all the challenges that come along with that. And um, so my story actually gravitates more toward the growth of a friendship Um, that started around a pop star but really got solidified over time. Mm -hmm. Looking back on that possibility is what we yearn for. We yearn to be young again, and that's really what this is all about. It's it's like, can I have a second chance? Can I go back and redo this? Mm -hmm. And it's also idealistic when you're young. You don't know anything about what's going to happen. Yeah. All right, so now we're going to take the second half of Amy's uh, essay. And Amy, what would you like to say to set that up just a little bit? I think what everyone experiences is an acceleration of time as you get older. You know, when you're young, it seems like you've got all the time in the world, and then you wake up one day and you're 30, 40, 50 or older, and so are your teen idols. So reconnecting with my friend who I'd lost touch with after we moved away um, ended up having a whole lot of meaning to it, so that's what I'm going to read about now. Robin married and raised a beautiful family. When my own marriage ended, having produced no children of my own, I sometimes wondered aloud if I'd contributed much to the betterment of the world. A kind friend here in North Carolina replied that she saw in me a great capacity and a gift for friendship. If that was true, I knew where I'd learned it. Then one day in 2013, the phone rang. Hi, it's Robin. And there was the same voice I'd heard hundreds of times back when we were girls. She was passing through Charlotte. Within 10 minutes, we were rummaging in a funky boutique in Noda and digging for beads, just as if more than 30 years hadn't gone by. I noticed she was wearing a truly giant diamond solitaire. She said, that's for surviving breast cancer. And I gasped. I was ashamed I hadn't known that my oldest friend in the world had endured months of grueling treatments and their miserable side effects. 
We promised each other we would reconnect in real life, and we did. In the next year and a half, I visited Robin three times. We careened our bikes around like kids again and scoured Cape Cod for trinkets on the 4th of July. On Labor Day weekend, at her family's pool, we were listening to Under Pressure, the catchy Queen-David Bowie collaboration from 1981. I'd heard it countless times, but it somehow never quite recognized its elegant demand for justice and for love in a world that puts people on streets. Robin said, I think this is the most important song of our generation. At 59, she was still proclaiming her faith in humanity and her devotion to the power of popular music. After all those years apart, reconnecting with Robin was all such good, glorious fun. But her cancer had come back, and by February, she was gone. Near the end, I told Robin what my friend in North Carolina had said about my capacity for friendship. I said, I want you to know that I learned everything I know about it from you, and I can never repay you for that. Without missing a beat, she replied, did it ever occur to you that I learned it from you? Somewhere along the way, Robin did finally meet Mark Lindsay in person. Of this, I am certain. Recently, I googled Paul Revere and the Raiders to fact-check my teenage memories. Ironically, the squeaky-clean band that wasn't cool enough for FM radio drew interest from punk artists in the 1980s. Mark Lindsay had gone out on his own in the 1970s, had several hits, and was making appearances as recently as 2013. His hair is still dark, but he no longer wears a ponytail. He turned 77 years old on March 9, 2019. Band founder Paul Revere died in 2014. Davy Jones of the Monkees is gone, too. He died back in 2012. The last time I checked, Bobby Sherman was still with us. And sometimes I wonder how many other faces from my photo wall we've lost to date, but I don't actually want to know the number, because eventually it will be all of them, all of us, musicians and fans, mothers and daughters, and once young girls who became friends for life. Until then, let's promise each other we'll never stop riding bikes, wearing lipstick, and singing the songs that bring us joy, whether it's from Broadway, Billboard, or any place else we discover the music in our hearts. Uh, Amy, that's a wonderful uh, piece of recollection. I, I know it's probably hard for you to even just read that now, thinking about your friend. A little bit. Yeah, and uh, but this these stories you're telling, both of you, it's about friendships. Um, I mean, you had peers at that time who were swooning the same way you were. And when you look back, you were able to laugh about it later over a glass of wine, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Or a mixed drink, whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, what, and a nice tribute to her as well in your essay. So thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're going to shift back for a minute to uh, another boy band here. Let's go back to Herman for a second um, and his hermits. So you told this first part of your story, Tammy, um, with this sort of imagined encounter uh, with your hero and uh, but then life you know is funny like that you never had that sort of encounter as, as a young girl right I did not and I really envied those who did um, I don't know how life would be different had I met him back when I was 13 probably uh, who knows but yeah. but I'm one of those <clears throat> rare instances where they actually get to meet the idol later yeah, and, 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 but you were still a member of the fan club all through life. No, right? I was never a member. Actually, I never was a member of the fan club until I'm much older and mature. Uh, uh, but you're a member now, yeah. Uh, technically, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. technically, yes. Mm-hmm. I'll probably elect you president before you know it after this. All right, so you want to set up this read here a little bit? Uh, all right. What we got? Okay. Um, well, this is later, you know, 48 years later, and I'm, I'm actually going to, to meet him officially Although I've met him in the autograph lines before, I have not really been a, <clears throat> a guest backstage. Peter remained off my radar until 2013 when he gave a concert in Lenore, North Carolina, and I discovered that his fan club of Nunatics was still alive and well. As a new lifetime Peter Noon fan club member, I went a backstage pass for his show in Vegas. It's Friday night. And Peter Noon is expecting me, finally, after 48 years. The theater door opens. Serena, a fellow lunatic, and I are led past a warren of dressing rooms. We step inside, and there's Peter, wearing a dove gray shirt and tie, jeans, and beetle boots. I keep reminding myself, you are really here in Herman's dressing room. The fan magazines didn't lie. 
He's five foot ten at most, and I'm wearing flats just like I imagined in eighth grade. Please excuse the mess, he says. He points at Serena. She's my chaperone, I explain, and we laugh. The first order of business is a photo. Billy, one of the guitarists, snaps two pictures and hands the iPhone to Peter, who taps the images for me to view. Which do you like, he says. The second one is better of you, I say. That works for him. I knew it would. The room can't be more than nine by twelve feet. The writer in me takes mental notes to remember what's being said, who's doing what. Peter straightens his tie. How does this look? It's supposed to be half an inch below the belt buckle. Serena and I nod our approval. Then he throws on his jacket, a perfect match to the tie and shirt. Does my tie look hang right? Do I look all right? This is surreal. I'm grateful that Serena is along to help carry the day. It feels warm in here. Then I blurt out, now I'm one degree of separation from Dennis Miller. I've done my homework. Comedian Dennis Miller is his neighbor and good friend. Peter looks at me as if I've lost my mind. No, really, I love Dennis Miller. I think he's hilarious, I say. Then Peter banters about how hard it is to keep up with Miller when they have lunch together. You need a dictionary, he says. I knew my flats would help us see eye to eye. After a few more laughs, it's almost showtime. As we pass the refreshment table, Peter urges us to help ourselves to a large chocolate chip cookie. I wrap mine in a napkin and tuck it into my handbag. This evening, I'm in the front row, and when Peter sings Mrs. Brown, he's not eight feet in front of me. I manage to bring the prized cookie home intact. Two months later, when the cookie is fully dried and shellacked, I gather it along with my golden nugget napkin, ticket, and backstage photo and head to a local frame shop. The young clerk there asks about the items to go into a shadow box. Why do you want to keep this stuff, she says. I met Peter Noon. He gave me the cookie, I say sheepishly. He was my teen idol. That's awesome, she says, though she has no idea who Peter Noon is. Was he sort of like the Backstreet Boys? The Backstreet Boys never outsold the Beatles. They were never in feature films or hosted a VH1 program or were disc jockeys for a satellite radio or played a starring role in a Broadway musical. They've never matched wits with Dennis Miller. I know that Peter Noon is head and shoulders above the Backstreet Boys, but I don't want to sound smug. After all, I'm trusting this young woman with my precious souvenirs, including the cookie. Sort of, I say. She gives me a knowing smile, and for an instant, we're both 13 again. <laughs> That's great. That's great. You did, you did a nice job of bringing, bringing back the memories and, and also still having that 13-year-old enthusiasm uh, when, you right. go to, when you go to see him. Well, we're all still a, 13, you know, if we want to admit it or not. And, well, you know. yeah. I mean, it's hard, you know, you, you, in your mind, you're still young, right? right, no matter what age you are. And so that, that's, that's great. All right, so this is a part of the show where we do a little bit uh, about the writing life of uh, the people who appear on the show, the authors who appear on the show. And um, you both have written short pieces. Amy, you've written a, a book. A, you've edited a book, a collection of food. You've written about food. for what, what attracted you to food, first of all? You know, food kept showing up in things. I was writing as a journalist. Mm-hmm. I was reporting on things um, for different outlets on topics like what it's like to live on minimum wage and what it's like to be an immigrant. And I noticed that food kept showing up in those stories. And I kind of sat back and I said, hmm, let's let's dig a little deeper. And started to notice that food is a really great lens that lets you look into pretty much any other topic that interests you, whether that's culture or politics or economics or art or really anything else. So that's what I've been running with for 10 or so years. So what's the trick to writing about food? Because now it seems like, you know, Instagram is taking over the food culture. You know, everybody's going to restaurants and taking pictures of the food and posting them out there. Are people taking the time to really dive in and read about? And how do you go about pulling them in with articles about food? Well, here's the big secret. There's a whole world of food writing outside of restaurants. Ah. You know, there's farmers, there's growers, there's bakers, there's travel, there's, you know, all kinds of, there's science. I love to write about food science and, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. So um, there's a wealth of it. You know, Instagram, I love it sometimes. Um, you know, it's hard to stop what you're doing and take a picture of what you're doing. 
Right. It's more fun to do than to stop and take pictures, but you do some of both. Well, and speaking of food and dining out and what have you, uh, Tammy, you wrote a short story called Dining with Robert Redford, right? Yeah, that's another yeah. fantasy. Another fantasy. It never happened. It never right. happened yet. But what, what, So what, was the, what gave you that idea to well, write that? The gist of this was an actual story. Oftentimes stories are you know, given to me on a, on a silver platter almost. Someone said they had gone to a restaurant and they had seen, I believe it was Paul Newman, and the story was, you know, the, the wife comes over and introduces herself and they bother Paul Newman and his wife through their dinner. And I thought, you know, I can believe that really happened. And I switched it to Robert Redford because in my story I wanted the wife not to be identifiable. Hmm. Because I really knew who she was, of yeah, Paul Newman knows yeah. Joanne Woodward. So anyway, that, that's where that came from. So and a lot of times y'all are writing um, pieces that have certain word count requirements and you're trying to pack a lot into short spaces, you know, with these essays and with some of the food articles, that kind of thing. So talk about that for just a second. People like to hear about the, sort of the routine of writing. You come up with an idea. Do you outline it out? Do you sketch it first, come back and polish it later? What, what do you do, Amy? You know, it kind of depends um, on what, your outlet is for your story. Mm -hmm. If I'm writing a magazine article, it's going to be a whole lot different than just a short take on something, you know, like a kitchen disaster. Right. A piece I wrote called, you know, how to make toaster grilled cheese in only 32 easy steps. You, you know, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's just yeah. different. You have to be open to the possibilities, but you also have to work it as work. You have do you, to do you, do you the research first and then write, or do you kind of do a little both at the same time? Well, you've got to kind of plod along on both tracks of just seeing and investigating what a story can become and reporting what you find and constantly kind of revising in your mind the kind of scope of what you want to tell. There's more than one story to be told in anything that you encounter, and there's a real knack to knowing which piece of a story you want to highlight. Mm. Yeah. Now, are y'all uh, kind of writers that uh, use your pen and pencil and write it out on paper or are you using your computers the whole time? How about you, Tim? No, I, if I wrote it out, I couldn't read it myself. Right, right. Much less much, um, my writing has gone downhill yeah. fast. Well, you, you and me are in the same camp. Yeah. We, we'd be fine together. Amy, do you... I can't write fast enough. i got to type it. you got to type mm -hmm. it? Okay. And, and is routine part of your writing practices? Do you do you keep to a schedule? Do you... Um, I wish. You wish? Yeah. yeah. So here's what I say to people who ask, do you write every day? I say, yeah, no, I don't right. write every day, but I work every day. Yeah. Because sometimes the bigger part of the project is the research or the experience or the recipe testing or the drive or the, you know, taking of the pictures. You know, mm -hmm. you, you work at it every day, but you're not always sitting there... Or you're pre-writing it in your head. Or you're pre-writing it, or you're outlining, or you're interviewing. I love mm -hmm. to interview people. That's work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's not always the writing, putting in the words. I know. When I work on my columns for the local paper, I, I, I said, what would I want to tell a person about this? And it's, it's almost like I'm sitting down having a visit with them. And I think that's how it comes across in the column, which is the success of it. So, yeah. So what's some of the best money you ever spent uh, as a writer? Oh, gosh. On your craft? Best money I ever spent. I think, honestly, going to the MFA program was a good thing for that's me. That's good for you. I did yeah. it much later in life, but and that's one regret I have, too. I didn't do it earlier, but it taught me how to critique and how to read and how to you know, do things I didn't particularly want to do, like annotations and that sort of thing. But mm -hmm. it, it's part of being a good writer. How about yeah. you, Amy? So when my friend Robin, who I write about in the story past, she left me a small bequest, mm -hmm. and it was enough to purchase a plane ticket. Mm. which I did, and took myself to the Middle East um, with another friend, Diane Howard, who was traveling there for research. And we spent about two weeks um, in and around Jerusalem doing research and studying and eating and drinking and living and looking back at things that happened thousands of years ago. And I wrote an, more food essays in that short time than I've written in any other time period in my life about the intersection of culture and history and religion and politics and, and everything that exists in the human heart. And that was the last gift that Robin was able to give to me. And I spent it People thought kind of correct. Who goes to Israel just to go without, uh, you know, a program or a project? But it was incredibly worthwhile, and I feel 
the effect of her generosity and her lifetime of love every day. That is great. Wow, that's neat. So where does, uh, do y'all have to go find your muse, go to a certain place when you write, or does your muse find you wherever you are? We don't need no stinking muse. No. (laughs) Sometimes it it calls you up, and sometimes it it comes to you in a dream, and sometimes it comes in the mail. You never know. (laughs) Nobody asks my dentist if he has the muse when he was, you know, or your your mechanic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe they'd follow him around or something. They're always, they're (laughs) always, always with him. So, uh, I like to ask this question sometimes of authors: um, How has writing influenced or changed your lives? I feel like it's something I have to do, and if I'm not doing it, I'm, I'm kind of out of out of whack. I'm just out of sorts, and I haven't done a whole lot of it here lately. I've had some personal issues, um, but I, I feel better. I feel like I'm I have some value when I'm writing. I just do. That's just part of who I am. I know it sounds weird to people who don't write much, but that's how it is. So, you know, I've heard it said that writing is a way to make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was Mary Carr in one of her books who said, um, writing is all about problem solving. And I think that really resonates for me. Mm-hmm. Well, since we, we're doing this show with uh, you know, teen infatuations, this question, which I sometimes ask, I think fits pretty well. And it is, if you could go back in time and you could tell your younger writing life self something valuable that you've learned over the years about writing... What would that be? Mm. Don't cut school so often. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Don't don't skip class. Yeah. <laughs> Pay attention to the syllabus. Yeah. I would say don't doubt yourself. Yeah. You know, you've got to get it there on the paper and then go back and fix it. It's not going to be perfect necessarily when you write it, but don't be afraid of. Don't worry about where is this going to be published or whatever. I know. Just write it and get it down. And if it comes from your heart, then it will probably find a home. That's really good advice, Tammy. I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm gonna take that because yeah. mm-hmm. when you work at writing and you don't just do writing as a hobby, mm-hmm. it's easy to fall into a trap of going, "Where is this going to get published? How right. can I spend time on this if I don't know that it's going to sell somewhere? I should be writing more about mm-hmm. whatever." Yeah. yeah. And, and and obviously, y'all were influenced uh, by more than just you know, teen pop stars when you're growing up because you became writers. What, were there a lot of books around your house? Did you grow up reading as well? And uh, have books been a big part of your lives ever since? They have. Because when I go on vacation, one time I spent a vacation going to libraries. That was kind of strange. <laughs> but I, I usually try to seek out a, li- a bookstore, a uh, library for research, if nothing else. Um, yeah, I, I, and I grew up with lots of books in the house. I, I loved children's books. I still do. And um, they're like old friends. I like. I have them up in the attic. I go look at them once in a while, maybe. I still have my copy of A Wrinkle in Time that I got at a scholastic book fair in grade school, along with pretty much every other book I've ever, mm. you, you know, yeah. gotten. But like you, books were a way to see a bigger world as mm-hmm. a kid and ever since. Yeah. So your writers, did you ever write that letter? To Mark Lindsay or to Peter Noon, did you ever put it in the mail and say, "I love you"? P.S. Please call. <laughs> no, no I, I don't think I ever did that. Robin did. Robin did. She yeah. did. She yeah. did. Did she get a response? She was fearless. She met him. I know she did eventually. Yeah, eventually. Somewhere, I'll have to ask one of her brilliant children to provide photographic evidence of that. Yeah. That's great. All right, so we're going to finish up by uh, looking back at the forward for just a minute. So you were able to. Have Peter Noon, your teen idol, write the forward for this book. Right. How, how did you pull that off? Um, I was. It was suggested to me by our agent, and I thought, oh, I don't want to ask him. Oh, you know, but but he he did. He was gracious enough to do that. Um, and I, I went through his assistant, who said, well, just I just emailed him, and and he emailed back and said he would be willing to do it, and we were grateful to have it. Um, and, and, and he starts out. He says he never expected to be a a so-called teen idol, and then he says the idea that I would ever be popular as some kind of heartthrob, you know, never entered his mind, and then he sort of has some reflections at the end. Uh, If you would, could you read just the last two paragraphs of that? Okay. Humility is having the willingness to learn, and I still yearn to learn. I wish all my fellow teen stars a great life, and I hope you have never disappointed your following. I hope I haven't disappointed any of you, 
and that you enjoy this book and the stories of idol worship of the nicest kind. That's that's great. Idol worship. Uh-huh. <laughs> we'll double nice. entendre there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the nicest kind. So uh, great. This has been a, a wonderful hour. Mm-hmm. I'm glad y'all came to to reveal your your dark secrets from your childhood about <laughs> who you really really were in love with at the time. Um, it's been great having you on the show, listeners. There's going to be information in the show notes and links. Uh, pictures of the books and uh, other information about uh, this book and uh, the writing lives and the bios and so forth of these authors. Uh, Amy, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. Uh, Tammy, thank you. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>